One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Manveen. In the last few years, there's been a huge rise in the number of people seeking a diagnosis of ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. The numbers have shot up and we wondered why. So we got talking to a colleague, Daryl Morris. Daryl is a presenter on Times Radio and he has ADHD himself. It's a diagnosis that he's lived with since he was a child, but he still has questions about it. So today's episode is Daryl's journey to understand ADHD, what causes it and why so many people are now wondering if they've got it. And just a very quick warning, this episode does touch on issues including suicidal thoughts and eating disorders. If any of those are triggers for you, this might not be the best episode to listen to. In the meantime, I'll leave you in the very good company of Daryl and his mum, Vivian. Hi there, mum. Hiya, Daryl. Hello there. Very dangerous question, this, really, but what was I like when I was younger? Pretty crazy, really. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Incredibly exuberant. Just never went to sleep. You couldn't leave anything on a table or anything where you were because you would just wipe things off the table. And... Because I was like you, I didn't really notice that much, but it was made known that other people found you were a very difficult child to deal with. (laughs) Maybe this is all just a really bad idea. Shall we stop now? (laughs) ADHD affects about three to four in every 100 adults. I... And one of them. I was diagnosed with ADHD when I was about nine. I took medication for a few years in school, but have lived most of my life without it. My fiance, Michaela, described it best. She once said that I have a busy mind. She noticed that I was often either intensely affectionate or a bit distant, and that regulating my emotions took a little bit more work than for the usual person. In my day to day life, I'm easily distracted can quickly become restless and can sometimes be impulsive. I need the dopamine hit of a deadline to get anything done. I'm recording this, for example, at the very last possible moment before the producer needs it to edit the episode. And something needs to be in my diary or it's not happening. You should see my calendar. It is a work of art. Over the years, I've found ways to cope with having ADHD and it's not all bad. 
It does also come with hyperfocus. When my mind sets itself on a task, I don't just do it, I do it to perfection. It also makes me curious, inquisitive, good at coming up with new ideas and seeing the world differently, makes me good at my job, solving problems. It really helps me, I think, in my job as a broadcaster and a journalist on Times Radio. Hello, good evening. 10 o'clock on Times Radio with me, Daryl Morris. Tonight, history in Northern Ireland. You might know somebody with ADHD, or you've likely seen those four letters somewhere lately. It's been all over social media and the news. I really felt like this experience that I've just had, getting diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 29 as an adult, seems to be something that a lot of people on the internet are currently going through or thinking about. I got my ADHD meds at 37 years old for the first time. I'm so excited about this. On TikTok alone, the ADHD hashtags had over 3 million posts that have been viewed more than 35 billion times. More celebrities are talking about their experiences too. It's what makes young blood young blood. What's showing your wounds? Absolutely, I think I think being vulnerable, you know. Do you have a mental health diagnosis? I mean, I had, I had ADHD. There's been an upward trend in ADHD diagnosis in the UK over recent years. Prescriptions for ADHD medication have roughly doubled since 2016. And since the pandemic, those trends have only accelerated. There's no doubt, ADHD has burst into the public consciousness. And some have questioned the rising cases. But do we really understand it? I'll be speaking to someone who, unlike me was diagnosed much later in life, and to a medical expert to find out what's really going on inside my brain. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Daryl Morris. Today, my journey with ADHD, and is it being overdiagnosed? When we were arranging this, you said something that really, really hit home to me. You said, could you send me a diary invite for this? Otherwise, it'll be like this conversation never happened. (laughs) That's it. I mean, obviously, I have to set up my own diary invitations and stuff with interviewees and stuff. And I have to do that immediately. Otherwise, they won't get done. Yeah, I'm very much relating to these coping mechanisms that you've got to put (laughs) in place in your life just to get to the end of the day. I'm Kat Brown. I'm a journalist and I'm the author of It's Not a Bloody Trend, Understanding Life as an ADHD Adult. That is a very punchy title for a book, Kat. It is. I was imagining something that people could literally hold up in front of relatives or certain newspaper columnists and any other sort of naysayers and just go, no, look, it's on the book. It's it's actually not a bloody trend. I created a book that is a third memoir. A third, interviews with lots and lots of other adults who have ADHD and were diagnosed or are waiting to be diagnosed as adults. And then a third is like the experts, really, like the psychiatrists, the researchers, clinicians, and people doing very practical things in the field to make adults with ADHD not just be treated or medicated, but to find out how to cope. In fact, let's start with with something that you reference in the book before we get into your story properly, which is one of the the earliest references to somebody with ADHD. 
for something that was only named as we know it in the late 80s, like ADHD was previously known as ADD in the early 80s and, and then hyperkinetic disorder of childhood for decades before that. It is amazing to see written down in medical textbooks as Alexander Crichton, the Scottish physician, who I'm sure we're all very familiar with, wrote down in the 18th century that exact like specific criteria of ADHD being observed. Like this isn't a new thing. This is something that has been around for years. And actually one of my one of my favorite nerdy pastimes whilst researching the book was looking up all of the scientists and researchers who have published their own incredibly niche, incredibly nerdy analysis of everybody from real life people like Leonardo da Vinci to fictional characters like Anne of Green Gables, analysing them and going, oh, look, here is explicitly shown completely symptoms of ADHD and using the criteria that we now have, we could retroactively give them a diagnosis. Wow. Yeah, that's so fascinating, isn't it? So fascinating. Let's talk about the memoir bit then. And talk about you and your life. What was your early life like? I grew up in the 80s and 90s when I think we can all agree that England's attitude to anything to do with mental health was pretty non-existent. And the only sort of condition, if you like, that was ever really diagnosed in schools was dyslexia. But I added to all of this, I was moved up a year at school when I was seven because of being incredibly tall. But it was just a bit weird. I grew up like reading literally any book that I could get my hands on because I was so easily bored and, you know, pre-social media, pre-video games, really, like books were it. So I had a very strong moral code that was largely driven by my mum's old Enid Blyton and Pony books, which meant that essentially I went into school life with the attitude of like a 65-year-old Englishwoman from many, many decades before. And the combination just meant I was bullied quite a lot. And all of these things just sort of distracted from any any underlying thing. But they also meant that I developed what I wouldn't discover for years were depression, anxiety. Later on at school, I self-harmed just because I was just desperate to get some of these feelings out. And I binge ate as well. And years later, I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder. And I think it's just when you don't know that such a thing as mental health exists, you just think that you are a defective avatar in a meat suit, really. I did, certainly. You say at one point that you were in, in the sort of depths of this, you know, kind of being trapped in your own brain, I guess, which is how it can feel, right? You said that you were planning an exit. What did you mean by that? Oh, I meant I was planning to kill myself, except I didn't, I didn't think of it like that. I thought of it as just sort of, I just wanted to disappear. But again, I didn't know any ways to disappear. And so the only one that I could think of was that. That actually was cued by when I was in my first year of university, which I went to when I was 17. And in my second term, I was flunking one of my modules. And instead of going, oh, well, perhaps you might actually have to revise a bit more and, you know, like actually work hard at something instead of just doing courses that you're naturally good at, I just went into absolute panic. There is an element to just wanting pain to stop, to wanting busyness, constant busyness to stop. The feeling that you are in some way less than or defective and just everything being too much. Those teenage years are torture enough, aren't they? When you're going through 
the changes you go through as a teenager, but to, to have the extra layer of this experience as well. In the, in the depths of that, cat, when you were feeling at your most tortured, even maybe plotting a route out, did you ever consider that there may be something bigger going on in your brain? I remember my mum eventually took me to the GP and it was such a relief when my GP listened to me and just explained that actually feeling like you wanted not to be alive, it's not a normal part of, you know, being, <laughs> being an adult. That's not real. I don't remember her explaining what depression was. I don't remember being prescribed anything. I only really remember starting to take any kind of medication a few years into university. But I do remember just hearing that that wasn't something that I should have to live with. And that in itself was extraordinary. It was quite a bit later, Kat, before somebody, I think somebody you were seeing for therapy, maybe nudged you in the direction of figuring out what was really going on in your brain. So... It wasn't until I was, gosh, 28, 29, maybe, when I started seeing this new therapist. And yeah, he just said, it looks as though we've sort of got to the crux of the matter. He said this one day, is that you think you're defective. And obviously I'd been, my brain had been pinging around like poisonous, horrible thoughts about myself for years, because one of the ways that I got myself to do anything was by using those thoughts as a sort of stick to kick myself through university, postgrad work, kicking myself if I screwed up at work, anything like that. And sadly, he didn't get around to being able to explain why I might think I was defective. But even so, somebody just expressing those thoughts back to you, that's also really powerful. And it was some time after that, wasn't it, that somebody finally said those letters to you, ADHD? It was 2019, I must have been, gosh, maybe 36. My counting is terrible. But I was seeing a therapist because my husband and I had gone through IVF and we'd had two failed cycles due to immature eggs. And so I was seeing her to go through my incredibly difficult feelings around not having children, but also internally dealing with the fact that I felt ambivalent about having children. And my routine would be I'd go, I'd cross the road from work, go and grab an enormous coffee and take it along to my session, this bucket of black Americano, like my emotional support coffee. And I remember just after a few sessions, she just said very casually, you know, drinking a lot of coffee can be a sign of ADHD. And I took absolutely no notice of this. I was like, oh, that's interesting for somebody who isn't me. And it wasn't until way, way down my Google hole of finding out about ADHD that I realised that actually using caffeine to sort of calm your speedy brain is incredibly common in people with ADHD. And I guess from that point, Kat, all of that chatter in your brain, you were starting to be able to explain, were you? So that meeting with my therapist when she mentioned ADHD is really just, it's almost like another stitch in the blanket of the big picture of finding out that you have ADHD. But then I was scrolling Twitter one day when I saw this thread and it was this extraordinary thread in which an ADHD coach was asking people who'd been diagnosed with ADHD in adulthood how they'd found out about it. And flipping heck, I, I just read down this thread 
you know, people having problems with alcohol, I'd given it up the year before. People having terrible problems with finances, we've already established. My counting is extremely, extremely bad. And all the different things like depression, anxiety, I had what was then called putty mal epilepsy when I was a child, which is a huge overlap in childhood with ADHD, like binge eating disorder, disordered eating in general, terrible trouble sleeping, problems with relationships or work, or just a constant feeling of jittery on edgeness, just not being right. And I just got to the end of this and was just like, good grief. Maybe I think that's the answer. And this again, is I think where, where people who in some cases, rightly poo-poo self-diagnosis, will be like, well, you can't decide that you have it. And it's like, no, but in order to go to the GP and go, could you please assess me or put me on a waiting list to be assessed for ADHD? You need to know what you're asking for. And I spent days just researching ADHD, finding out all these fascinating things. But then this extraordinary feeling that maybe the crap that I have gone through is one day going to help inform the science that will mean that somebody else doesn't have to go through that. And that informs, again, why I wrote this book enormously. I'm on a bit of a journey myself here as well with the making of this episode, right? Because I'm kind of considering what my life may have been like had I not been diagnosed when I was a child. And I think I'm starting to realise just how unbelievably fortunate I was. In fact, I've always kind of known this, but it's perhaps it's just being refreshed in my mind that I was unbelievably fortunate to have a diagnosis as a child and to not live my life through the torture of wondering what was going on in my brain. I was able to put some of those things in place and to explain how I felt to myself and to other people. Just wondering, Kat, how, how different your life would have been had you had diagnosis when you were a lot younger. At the end of my book, I include a summary from a consensus statement around ADHD, which is, it's basically evidence-based conclusions around ADHD drawn from a, a frankly extraordinarily large number of studies with minimum 2,000 people. They've all been cross-checked and approved and everything by multiple people from all across the world. And people with ADHD are at increased risk for obesity, asthma, allergies, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, sleep problems, psoriasis, epilepsy, STIs, eye abnormalities, immune disorders and metabolic disorders. They are at increased risk for low quality of life, substance use disorders, accidental injuries, educational underachievement, unemployment, gambling, teenage pregnancy, difficulty socialising, delinquency, suicide and premature death. That's what your life could have been like. So it terrifies me to imagine living my life trapped in my own head, unable to explain how I was feeling. But does everybody on those long waiting lists for a diagnosis have ADHD? And what is happening in my brain? That's next. So I've got a confession to make. Even though I've lived my life with ADHD, I'm still not 100% sure what's really going on in my brain. So I got in touch with Dr. Ulrich Muller-Sedgwick. I'm a general adult psychiatrist and I've been working 
in adult ADHD since 2005. So you clearly know what you're talking about. And you also presumably know what's going on in my brain. Could you help me with that? What is happening, Ulrich, in my brain? Yeah, I heard that you have been diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 9 or 10 years. So you know the symptoms of ADHD quite well. What I used to explain what's going on in the brain is basically that people with ADHD have some kind of deficiency of dopamine or noradrenaline. And now you can either take medication to increase the levels of dopamine and this increased levels brings you up to a normal level where enough dopamine in the especially prefrontal parts of your brain helps you to focus, to concentrate, you feel a bit calmer. But it also explains what people do when they don't have access to medication. People who don't have access to medication, they try to do activities that activate dopamine. This would be anything that is rewarding. So it can be just falling in love uh, increases dopamine or food, sex, <laughs> uh, gambling. So all these activities increase dopamine in the brain. And that could also explain why lots of people with ADHD then get addicted to some of those activities. Right. I basically don't have enough dopamine and my brain is thirsty for it. Yeah, that's a simplified, like like all these models, it's a simplified model. Uh, yes. I think it, it works to explain some of the effects of the medication and also some of the symptoms and the coping strategies. They can be functional or dysfunctional coping strategies. Right? I haven't mentioned anxiety, stress, deadline stress. So again, it's something that increases uh, noradrenaline levels in your brain if you always work toward deadlines and uh, always running late, or if you have lots of stress in your relationship, even that can activate your brain that is otherwise kind of underactivated if you have ADHD. Yes, all of those things are true. Definitely always running late, definitely always leaving things right to the end of the deadline. Am I disabled? I've never considered myself to be disabled, but technically ADHD is a disability. Yeah, according to the England Disability Act counts as a disability, and it's also listed in our psychiatric classification manual. Also, there is a genetic link. ADHD clearly runs in families, but we haven't really identified the one and only gene. It's lots of genes, not just one gene. Okay, there's a big debate, isn't there, about how many people are being diagnosed. The weighted lists a large for the NHS at the moment. There seems to be a lot of ADHD content around. And I guess Ulrich, we're kind of trying to grapple with this question. Are we over-diagnosing ADHD? During the, the lockdowns, I think this was a time when patients who were just getting along with their life because they had developed good strategies that often included walking a lot during the day, having regular breaks, doing lots of sports. And, and many of these activities then suddenly stopped and they had to work from home. So that's really when, when we saw lots of increased referrals or patients who were already on medication and then struggled. But if you look at the scientific data, the most recent study, they came up with a prevalence of 3.1 
5% in adults. So this is three out of 100. And in the UK, we are definitely still far away from having diagnosed three out of 100 people with ADHD. There's increasing prescribing rates. We diagnose more adults and children with ADHD, but we're basically still catching up with lots of previously undiagnosed patients. Right. So hang on. Are you effectively saying that at the moment we are underdiagnosed? Yeah, you can have this debate. Does every adult with ADHD need a diagnosis? Everyone who technically meets the diagnostic criteria. And even NICE would say no, if you found the right niche in society where your ADHD can actually be more an advantage rather than a a disadvantage, then you don't need a diagnosis. But if you just look at epidemiological data, we are underdiagnosing at the moment. Hmm. Okay. That's me, by the way. I found my niche within society. I think the reason that I am speaking to you today on this podcast, the reason that I'm a radio broadcaster and do a little bit of writing and a journalist is because I've got ADHD. Yeah, and and we speak a lot also in in, in my clinic about the positive aspects of ADHD these days. And that's sometimes difficult to understand for managers in the NHS. So how is it possible that someone who claims to have ADHD can also have these positive aspects of being very good in some parts of their work, but then not struggling in in other parts of their their life. So this this is sometimes a difficult concept, maybe better to explain in this context of when we talk about neurodiversity, so that not everybody is the same. Uh, You can be different. How long is the NHS waiting time for a ADHD diagnosis at the moment? The best measure is probably how long did a patient uh, have to wait at the point when they were seen for an assessment. That's for most services at the moment in, in the UK, somewhere between two and three years. But then you would also ask, so what about a patient who's just added on to the end of the, the waiting lists? Yeah, the worst case scenario, I think, is, is 10 years at the moment. Goodness me. Okay, so this also leads us then to the private clinicians, doesn't it? And getting a private diagnosis. And I guess lots of people who are on that waiting list are turning to private clinics because they can't get an NHS appointment. What do you make of that industry? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of good private practice, but there is also the, what you call the ADHD industry. So so if, if there's competition in the market, then people come up with ideas. How can we see more patients in shorter periods of time? And this may then have an impact on the quality of the assessment. Because at the moment, there is a problem that that we have too many kind of poor quality ADHD assessments around. So whilst you say that most private clinics practice according to the NICE guidelines, you're saying that there might be some that don't, that aren't doing those assessments properly. Why why doesn't the system work properly now? The capacity just doesn't meet the demand. So demand has grown much faster than than everybody thought at the time. And we just haven't been good enough in developing the services and pathways for those patients. When we have these conversations, we talk about ADHD, especially when we kind of write about them in the Times and the Sunday Times, 
these articles will almost always have some comments of people who think that we're doing too much, too much diagnosis, or it isn't right. I'm going to read you some of the comments. These are actual comments on an article just in the last couple of weeks. One person says, yet another symptom of our privileged Western lifestyle degeneration. Another person says, attention-seeking idlers. Another one says, one in nine kids have ADHD. Sorry, cannot be so. Something is wrong somewhere. Why is this issue so hotly debated and kind of divisive? Interestingly, it's it's far less controversial than it was uh, 15 years ago. So and it's probably also a generational thing. When I started treating adults with ADHD, probably half of the GPs really didn't believe that ADHD exists. It was almost like a, a religious belief that they, they accused us of, of having. But these days we have, interestingly, also, it's probably driven also by clinicians, doctors, nurses, and psychologists who are neurodiverse themselves, who have ADHD or autism, who have uh, family members with ADHD. And they are the drivers also. The younger generation of psychiatrists and, and GPs, they have seen patients where the treatment work. And that's why they keep on referring them. So it's the patients asking for referrals, but it's also GPs seeing that patients that have often been mistreated for decades, they have been treated with antidepressants or for anxiety and it all didn't work. And only once they were diagnosed with ADHD, this really made a difference. So so this is the learning curve, I would call it, that has resulted in a change of the public opinion. But yes, there, there is still those people who are very critical about it. Mum, what do you make of the current conversation? Long waiting lists, videos all over social media about ADHD, real booming news stories about it. And with that, I guess, a debate about it, about whether we are indulging in overdiagnosis, whether we are medicating normal human behaviour, etc. I think it's down to each individual case when we talk about medication. Once we got the diagnosis and we went and we learned about ADHD, it was an absolute revelation to suddenly see something and to understand something for the first time that I'd lived with and that we now could help you with to understand also to make sure that you were never stigmatised at school and that you were not seen as a naughty child uh, because it could have gone that way, you know, it really could have gone that way because you were very disruptive. I could have been written off, really, couldn't I? You could have been written off. I mean, I I would never have written you off, (laughs) Daryl. You wouldn't have been written off under my watch, but... (laughs) But other people did see that, yeah. Other people did respond to you in that way, and I think having that diagnosis and learning all about it and learning how the brain works with ADHD made a huge difference just to the way that we all functioned as a family. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Daryl Morris, and my guest, Kat Brown, author of It's Not a Bloody Trend, Understanding Life as an ADHD Adult, and consultant psychiatrist, Dr. Ulrich Muller-Sedgwick. 
As you can imagine, half an hour isn't enough to cover a complicated topic like ADHD. So if you'd like more information, there is a guide on the NHS website. The producer was Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer was James Shield. And sound design was by David Crackles. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a thumbs up wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others to find us. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.